how to help children build resilience and manage anxiety. Michael Horton is an Australian registered psychologist, a former school teacher, and the founder of Parent Shop, which is a resource hub for parents, educators, and child family specialists. He has two previous books on child behaviour management, and his latest is The Anxiety Coach. It's geared to equip children and young people with the skills needed to help them manage their emotions and overreactions. In recent years, rising anxiety levels in Australasian children have been linked to the COVID pandemic and to school issues. But Michael Horton says it's been apparent for much longer. He has helped to develop a program called the Anxiety Project, which has been taken up by 58 New South Wales primary schools so far. And he points out that it's important not to treat early signs of anxiety as if they were a permanent disability. Uh, Michael, welcome. Thanks so much. Hello, Catherine. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, if not the pandemic, uh, perhaps social media's rise, uh, or, or what else? Where, how far back do you track a measurable increase in the prevalence of anxiety amongst children? Yeah, well, there's been a few things happening over the last 10 years, I'd say, Catherine, that have contributed to it. Uh, I think that the three factors I think are very apparent are children probably not getting as much sleep as they used to. So you've got young children in primary school who are not getting the 10 to 11 hour sleep that they require. And, and what happens when little kids don't get a proper amount of sleep is their the kind of amygdala part of their brain pushes up and they, they actually see more 9 out of 10 situations to 4 out of 10 events, I like to call it. Uh, so that's one factor. I think the early use of social media platforms for kids under 13 is not, not good for them. Um, the US Surgeon General, a guy called Vivek Murtry, said that uh, we're pitting young kids against the brightest, smartest developers in the world. And their job is to keep you on the page, of course. And so... I think if you're pitting them against a 10-year-old in his or her bedroom, that's that's problematic. And I also think that, my, I don't know about you, Catherine, but my parents used to, to tell me things to equip me for life, for challenges, if that makes sense. So like um, they would help me to think through problems before I reacted. And I had lots of space, I suppose, as a child, like I call it kind of radical downtime to think about things. Maybe I thought too much, but, you know. I think those three things. Radical mm. downtime is a biggie, right? It, it, it is It is time just to get away in your own headspace. Uh, I've told this story so many times, and I apologise for telling it again, but as a child of the 70s with the nuclear you know, nuclear threat, 70s and 80s really, nuclear threat overhanging us, I, I recall thinking, I'm not, I'm not going to get to be a grown-up, this thing's going to happen and I'm not going to get to be a grown-up, which is a pretty depressing thought for a young child. But then I'd go out and start and play, like just, play and, yeah. <laughs> and live life for yeah. for two or three hours, right? It's the constant yeah. incoming that is so difficult for everybody's nervous systems, but especially children's. Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, I, I think we should shield our kids. I'm not being Pollyanna here. I mean, those things will continue to exist. But I do think the pipes, if you like, of information coming in are much more than, say, when I was a child. Um, but... I also think kids are being a little overprotected psychologically, and I talk about this in the book, and they're not being assisted, if you like, to face life's challenges and stressors by the people around them, not just mum or dad, but, you know, the teachers as well. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Have we just got too protective on all fronts, and do... Do, do children need to learn, as you say, to confront difficult things 
but to um, process them appropriately. Could you elaborate? Yes, I think one of the problems is that when we see, and we're mammals, we look after our young, um, but when we see our children in distress, there is a tendency in parents to sometimes jump in too quickly and not let the child wrestle or struggle with the difficulty. Uh, and I've seen this quite a lot in Australia where parents are, you know, jumping in to solve problems for their child a little too quickly because they're distressed at seeing their child distressed. Uh, so that's one issue, I think. I also think that um, if, you know, if the child had to go off and see the psychologist, the psychologist would challenge the child and teach the child problem-solving skills and help them to reframe uh, the difficulties they might be facing. That's a tricky thing to do as a parent because you're going to have to put your own feelings on hold to be there for the child and be their coach, as I talk about in the book. So let's give some examples of what you might do uh, in this circumstance. Uh, if you are a caregiver or, 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 or someone spending time with a child or you're a teacher uh, or indeed you're a parent yeah. who's, who's up for trying to put some of those emotions to one side, could you give us some examples? Yeah. Well, I think uh, you just said the first thing would be to say to yourself, this is not about me. It's not about how I feel. It's about how I can help facilitate a conversation with my child to help him work out his or her solution to that problem. It is tricky, I think, for mums and dads because we're told to protect, and we do. We protect our children. That's our main role in life. But sometimes it's it's uh, counterproductive to jump in all the time. And, and at times we need to give them skills for thinking through a problem. We can acknowledge and be supportive. We can say, I can see you're a bit distressed by what happened, um, by all means. But then it's how do you help the child to work out a solution to his or her problem? And, and that's developing, Catherine, in them what's called their internal locus of control. And what we know over the years is that internal locus of control is very much correlated with children's reduction in, in anxiety. So, and they'll learn better at school because they, they'll become better problem solvers on the spot. So if parents can use those micro moments, instead of um, taking helping the child to avoid a problem or saying, oh, don't worry about that, which is called reassuring, Instead of doing that, if they can just help the child to wrestle with the, the difficulties that they're facing, uh, that's going to be a better outcome. There's, there's an old saying in this, in this game, Catherine, it says, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. And ultimately what that means is that we need to give kids skills to overcome life's challenges and stresses. So let's look at the age at which anxiety, in inverted commas, first begins to show. Uh, quite yeah. early on, potentially. Can you give us some examples? We'll work through the ages. The, the biggest uh, factor here is um, avoidance. Kids will... Um, most Look, let's normalise anxiety. Everybody gets anxious at one time or another. Uh, where it becomes a problem is when you see kids who uh, stop doing things they normally would do uh, or they'll, for example, like school refusal um, during the pandemic, you know, no parent wanted to be too hard and fast on their kids doing their schoolwork and or um, going to school. Um, but the anxiety of going back to school, for example, is a case in point where children are really um, avoiding a, a something, so they behave anxiously. In some recent research that's been done in this area, they've looked at the way in which children also speak anxiously, and they're overusing terms like, I'm anxious, 
I'm depressed, I'm traumatised, for example, when those words may not be the most nuanced word to use. But the more you use those words, of course, the more likely it is that you'll believe them. My wife's a learning support teacher in a high school in eastern New South Wales. And she often has uh, kids will come up to her learning support centre. These are high school kids. And she'll say to them, what brings you here today? And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I'm anxious. And she's married to me, so she knows what the next question is. Well, tell me what you mean. And they'll say, I don't like that teacher. Now, we have a completely different kettle of fish there. But the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I'm anxious. How old are they, Michael? The more that we use How that, old are they? Oh, year eight, nine, ten kids. I don't recall even know, having a concept of what that word meant at that age. So is this something that, 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 mm. they, that they've learned because others are consciously using the word as a descriptor? Well, I think on the internet, on social media platforms, uh -huh. okay. there are words that are being overused and misused, but they're important words if you keep, if you, for example, if you're facing a, a small event, like a two out of 10 event, and you use big words like that to describe what's going on, then that kind of lays tracks down in your, the left hemisphere of your brain. I mean, it's spooky, but true. The, 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 wor the words we use to frame up adversity or challenges really matter. And if you keep repeating inflammatory words and phrases to describe small events to yourself and to other people eventually that will have an effect it'll it'll affect you in the long term because it becomes a pattern of behavior so let's keep the conversation going a child sees they're anxious and let's say they're, they're quite young um you know well they might even yeah. be younger than, than than age what's the next question just what you've said just it's just tell me what's going on right just tell me why and then yeah. where do yeah, you yeah. go yeah. So, Catherine, uh, when I was talking about those kids before, there was, uh, they were teenagers. Year eight in Australia is, um, uh, yeah. But I, I would be talking with them about, well, what are you hoping to achieve in your life by going to school? You know, what's the outcome you might want to um, think about? Uh, what if you're if if you had a friend in in your situation and they weren't able to come up to the learning centre, what would you suggest that they do? with that feeling that they have about the teacher. Um, and so what you're doing is helping them get outside of themselves with a solutions-based question. In other words, we need to help kids start scaffolding alternative ways of thinking about the problem that they might be facing. And that's what cognitive behavioural therapy ultimately does. What it does is it helps kids to wrestle with the problems without truncating it too quickly. Because what happens sometimes is that kids will say, look, I used to see these children in practice and they would lock down on a hard no. They go, no, I'm not doing that. And and then where does that leave the adult who's listening to that? You know, they either have to force their hand possibly or they let the child avoid. And I think the problem is that we're not crash hot at being able to have those conversations with kids that take them into that kind of second and third order thinking. Well, they're uncomfortable, aren't they? Crucial. They're uncomfortable. So let's stay with the 13-year-old, right? And and we know TikTok and other places, we know the, it is just full of uh, some of it useful uh, advice and, and support and probably a lot of it, as you say, risks uh, kids getting hooked up in it and either getting poor advice or, or, or misdiagnosing themselves. So let's come back to what you're talking about which is, I feel like this, 
And the next question is, okay, what are we going to do about it? Do, do, do you need to acknowledge the feeling, by the way, in the first case? Do you need to validate the feeling and then go to the next? Uh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Sure. You can still be supportive and compassionate, um, but you're not going to be jumping in the river with the child at that point in time. Um, in Look, some people call the overuse of empathy, for example, called co-rumination. And you see it in playgrounds, certainly in, in, in Australia, where a year eight kid goes outside or, you know, even a, a child in upper primary school and they, they you know, belly ache about, oh, I hate that teacher. She's really terrible. And her friend says, yeah, she, I hate her too. She's awful. And the friend and person who's complaining says, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, she's always getting me into trouble. And then their friend empathizes back. Now, that's called co-rumination where you ruminate with the person uh, you're speaking to and it's happening quite often and sometimes it happens between parents and children as well so that's not helpful but let's, let's also talk about moving beyond the validation because the other thing that yeah. can happen is i feel like this and as you say it is all about this it is all about the person person a the child the 13 year old right or 14 year old Mm -hmm. what you're wanting Mm -hmm. to go through is okay that's well and good now what are we going to do about a situation including the fact that i as a parent may not be able to take it away from you (laughs) do you know what i mean so can you work me through the next two stages moving from how you emotionally feel about something, legitimate or not, to what you're going to do about it, that isn't just get me out of that class or take me out of the school or I don't want to be around this person. Work through the solutions with us. Sure. So, I mean, one of the key things is to deal with the facts. And often, you know, I've had a parent say to me, she often says to her teenager who comes to her with a strong feeling, uh, is that a feeling or a fact? And that's a good line because it's a good quip to go back to the teenager with because you may not be able to solve these problems by sitting down and having kind of lay counselling sessions with your teenager because they won't buy it. But what you can do is chip away at their emotional reasoning and their catastrophizing by at least stop what I call it stopping the bus occasionally with them and saying, tell me about what you mean. Is there a way that you could solve this problem? Uh, What's what's the way in which you could talk to me about this? That's not using big words like um, depressed or traumatized or whatever. We've got to get kids more accurate in the way that they describe things to themselves and to other people. And that's going to happen across thousands and thousands of conversations. Eli Libowitz is a a specialist in this area from Yale. He says that uh, anxiety is not like a sore tooth. It's not like fixing the tooth and it will go away. But rather, he says, it will get better or worse as a result of um, seemingly modest interventions by uh, adults over a period of time. What what he's saying basically is that you can chip away that anxious behaviour over a long period of time, and that's the best way to approach it. In the book, I talk about the way in which young people can be helped to think through a problem with their parents facilitating that. So the, the anxiety coach is the parent. The parent's going to be able to do certain things to equip the child to solve problems, to reframe things, to, to return to calm. If you went off to see the psychologist, Catherine, or anybody went off to see the psychologist, they would basically teach you five main things. They teach you problem solving. 
a teacher reframing. If you're old enough, they would teach you a, a, a process called refuting, which is coming up with evidence for and against the way that you might be feeling or the situation you're in. They would teach you arousal reduction techniques and they would teach you interrupting techniques, which are ways of stopping you from cycling. So all of those I go into in the anxiety coach, but the way in which parents can respond, it, they need to a little bit of education and don't need a lot for that for that to happen. There's a new breed of books coming out at the moment called parent-led interventions, and that's what an, the anxiety coach is about. When do we then differentiate and, and how with, with a case of anxiety that requires specific interventions or could be put into um, a, a clinical context? When and how do you know? Well, they, they usually stop doing things they've normally been doing. I mean, it's a good question, Catherine, because the, there's a difference between normal anxiousness, which most people have at one time or another, and an anxiety disorder. So anxiety disorder, you know, for a, a, the average median age, rather, of an anxiety disorder in Australia, probably the same in New Zealand, is that it's about um, 11 years of age when an anxiety disorder is first diagnosed. And it affects about 7% of children. If it's not remedied, it will tend to get worse, unfortunately. Um, by the time they're 15, it's jumped to 11%. And by the time they're 18, it's jumped by about another um, 7% up to 18%. So we know that anxiety problems are what's called progressive. They progress over a period of time and they're often learned. And so you can, usually there's nothing wrong with children's brains, Catherine. That's the other thing I wanted to say this morning is that there's, you know, children's brains couldn't have changed in 25 years to signify, you know, that the current level of anxiousness we're seeing in children. So could, it must be the environment. Could you, Michael, just, um, well, I, for me, I keep coming back to that 24-7 overload pumping into their amygdala as it is to all of ours. But yeah. we're old enough and ugly enough, hopefully, yeah. many of us, to try at least to construct some, some interventions to that. Not very successfully sometimes. Yeah. Look, it's it's difficult yeah. for you to respond succinctly, but I've got one question I'd love you to try if you could, or, or point this sure. person perhaps sure. in, in, the, in the direction of some resources. My nearly five-year-old has anxiety, and we're seeing someone about it, but would love to know how she can learn more to go with the flow with other kids and play, rather than overthinking it and being too fearful of joining in. Yeah. Um, teach your child some um, bodily um, re, um, calming skills. Um, so children experience fear usually in their bodies when they're young, four, five, six. Uh, and so what you've got is little kids who need to learn what are called um, the return to calm skills. Now, return to calm skills can be taught by a parent to the child. And I go into that in the in the book, in The Anxiety Coach. There's a number, there's actually three that I specify, uh, return to calm skills. And once you teach that to children, then you can prompt them when you see them getting a bit heightened or a bit fearful. But there are some other strategies in the book too called exposure ladders where you can help children to face fears over a period of time in a graduated way. Thank you again, uh, Michael, and I hope we might talk again at a future date. There's plenty more to discuss. Thank you. Michael Horton is an Australian registered psychologist, former school teacher, founder of Parent Shop, a resource hub for parents, educators and child family specialists. His anxiety project has been taken up by 58 New South Wales primary schools so far.